The Dry Cleaner Cast presents Need to Know. Need to Know is a new quarterly podcast featuring conversations with security experts focused on the terrorism and intelligence stories dominating the headlines. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. This is Need to Know. On this month's podcast, we will be discussing the recent terrorist attacks in Manchester and London. I am joined by former CIA officer Yaya J. Fanusi. Regular listeners to the Dry Cleaner cast will remember Yaya from our episode back in October 2016. If you haven't heard that episode, I highly recommend it. It's one of my favourite. Without further ado, this is Need to Know. Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner. Welcome, Yaya. Thank you for joining me on Need to Know. Thank you. Glad to be here. So just for listeners who may not have heard our podcast before, Yaya has actually uh, he joined us on episode three of The Dry Cleaner cast, which was... That was back in October last year, 2016, uh, for listeners in the future. Um, and so um, I'm just going to let Yael just uh, tell us a little bit about who he is, um, just so for new listeners can uh, find out everything about him. So Yael, tell us a bit about yourself. Sure, sure, Chris. So I'm a former CIA analyst. I was a counterterrorism analyst for several years, actually assigned to the National Counterterrorism Center here in the U.S., um, for uh, most of my time, I covered al-Qaeda and Sunni extremist groups, um, uh, particularly plotting against the United States. As part of my duties, I dealt a lot with radicalization issues. Um, one of the uh, individuals who I followed in, during my time there was uh, the, uh, the, the infamous Anwar al-Awlaki, um, looking at some of his early propaganda activities. Um, and uh, currently, I'm the Director of Analysis at the Center on Sanctions and Illicit Finance at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, which is a national security think tank here in Washington. And probably of interest, um, uh, for those who didn't listen to the earlier interview, I'm also a Muslim convert, uh, converted to Islam uh, in my early day or my latter days of college. And um, uh, probably another interesting point is that the 7-7 bombing, uh, in London actually impacted my decision to become a counterterrorism analyst. So I'm always uh, interested in um, what what's going on in, in the UK. Um, and I should probably mention I'm also a podcaster. <laughs> have my own uh, podcast, The Rhythm of Wisdom, which is a personal uh, podcast about uh, Islam and working in national security. It's a really good podcast. I listen to it often. I really enjoy it. Thanks. So just for listeners, new listeners and uh, existing listeners, um, this is a, a new show called Need to Know, which will be quarterly. And so um, what we will be doing uh, in this episode is looking back on the last quarter, which is April through to June 2017. 
Now, obviously, world events are not that clean, so there will be some references and thoughts on events outside this area, such as the Westminster attacks, which happened on the on the 22nd of March 2017. And, um, Yo-Yo, you've already mentioned 7777. It's, the, um, it's just gone past the 12th anniversary of those uh, terrible attacks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was, was thinking a lot about that over the past few days. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And especially thinking about it in relation to the kind of events that have just recently happened as well, it kind of uh, gives it a new a new poignancy. Exactly, exactly. Uh, it seems that we're still dealing with uh, some of the same issues, right, that we, that we faced 12 years ago. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think when we probably talk about the current events in a minute, um, at least I've found um, in the last sort of few months when I think about the uh, things that have been going on. I feel like I repeat myself a lot because um, some of the core issues uh, are very are very certain things that have unfortunately not changed. And um, so I'm sure we will in, um, come a, go over familiar ground as we we chat today. Right. We will um, we will start with looking at the Manchester bombing. So on the 22nd of May 2017, a man named Salomon Ramadan Abedi detonated a homemade bomb at the exit of the Manchester Arena and this was following a concert by American singer Ariana Grande and his targets were um, sorry his targets and victims were primarily the teenage fans and their parents waiting for them as the concert ended the attack killed 22 people and injured a further 250 and um, so, yeah, I, I don't know if you have any particular thoughts on the Manchester attack, but let's, yeah, let's have a quick look at that. I think f- for me, uh, there, there, are a lot, there are a lot of questions about the operation, um, which, you know, obviously I may not have much insight in, or I don't have <laughs> insight into um, in terms of the actual investigation of it. But I do think, and what I, I think it's important to touch on is, um, some of the issues that we should think about based on the attack and the attacker and the attacker. Um, and I think the key thing is, you know, I think this shows we have not been successful. And I say we, I mean, all of us, you know, whether in the West or elsewhere who are, but particularly in the West, who are trying to prevent and counter um, these types of attacks based on this, um, this sort of uh, this ideology and this motivation, we have not been successful at undercutting the pool of extremist narratives, particularly for, I don't know how you describe it, but maybe young, um, you know, the newly, newly zealous, yeah, this profile of a sort of a newly zealous um, young Western Muslim who's sort of caught in between two worlds, uh, even though this is a fringe element, right? Most people, even most, you know, of course, most devout people are not, uh, are not, not violent and we, sh- we, we shouldn't make that, uh, uh, that correlation um, necessarily. But with even with this fringe element, I think we're missing something. So, for, so here's an example, something I was thinking about recently when you're know, reading about uh, Abedi, and I think there was one account where uh, the an imam at uh, a mosque where Abedi went to for prayers, said he said that the imam was actually giving a sermon where he was. Uh, uh, you know, really denigrating ISIS. You know, talking about how ISIS is unacceptable and how they're, you know, they're, you know, they're outside the pale of Islam. And and the Imam said that Abedi, after that lecture, after that sermon, gave him a look of hate. Oh yes, right. You know, so so you probably heard that. So 
Um, so this, you know, it, it, this, what this means is that even though we, you know, within the Muslim community, um, and, and within the public, you know, the message is clear that, that ISIS is bad, that terrorism is bad. I mean, you know, anyone who goes to preschool knows it's bad to hurt people. Um, I think the problem is that even though there's this focus on making terrorism dishonorable, we don't have a focus on what actions should be should be honorable, right? From a from a uh, from a religious perspective, so there's this disconnect, right? It's very easy to say ISIS is bad, don't join ISIS, um, but for someone who is uh, looking for this or who is sort of captured by this idea of of what they think is a this sort of a just and honorable cause, um, there's no, nothing to compete with that. And jihadists have a narrative uh, which which conveys honor, which conveys this idea of protect, protecting the faith. Um, but there has to be something to compete with that. Uh, and I think that's the key uh, to, to, to preventing a lot of, 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 lot of what we're seeing. doesn't mean that terrorism is going to stop. doesn't mean that the jihad, jihadist ideology is going to disappear um, tomorrow. But there certainly is a lack of a competing narrative that's strong enough and that resonates that could perhaps... Um, help to 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 um, to, to deter uh, some of these acts. Yeah, and I'm just going to make a big generalization. Is there? Do you think that there's an element of because um, most of these attackers tend to be young men, right? Right. Uh, not all of them, but most of them, uh, certainly with the events in Europe. Is there a sense of? Um, do you think kind of like I'll call it teenage rebellion they're not teenagers but i'll call it that do you think there's an element of that and they're trying to obviously they're trying to discover their identity and and how they want to interpret the religion and maybe they see their parents who have a more sort of traditional more peaceful way of worshiping the religion as kind of like old fogies that they don't really identify with them do you think there's an element of that there, there's there, there certainly is um you know that exists and and any those of us who've gone through the teenage years in our 20s and you know we've all gone through many of us have gone through phases of uh, either rebellion or you know re- rejecting uh, rejecting uh, the, the, the 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 you know being more counterculture i mean that that's very very common i think it's important to to note that um that uh, that rebelliousness and that searching for an identity does not uh necessarily have to lead to um, a more radical understanding or radical actions, uh, right? Because a lot of people go through this. A lot of people yes. go through. I mean, uh, I'd say that the the, the path of of a convert is in, in a sense, you know, someone coming from one religion to another or someone becoming newly committed to their religion. Um, they're going through a process where they're reassessing what they, what they believed before and what they practiced before. And they may reject some of the ideas or some of the conduct that they were in, that they, that they had or that their family had. Um, so that's, you know, that's a part of just the, the messiness of life and, and searching and identity, you know, identity formation. Um, uh, so, so again, that just because someone is searching or becoming more devout doesn't mean that they're going to um, you sort of fall into the jihadist uh, and the extremist ideology. But I, I think it's what what um, what what this means is that there's a very powerful narr- narrative out there that some people will latch on that does fit that does sort of scratch the itch. Of us, of a, again, a, a person who's looking for meaning, who's searching, who's seeing what's happening in the world, and looking for a clear, uh, concise uh, understanding of it. The jihadist narrative actually fits 
um, for, for, for these folks. And so, again, my point is, um, if, if, if young people are always going to be going through this, you know, there should be, there needs to be something, uh, an alternative view or narrative that should be in the mix. So that if someone is looking for, again, what I say is honor, they're looking for dignity, they're looking for a mission. Um, the mission can't just be, um, terrorism is bad. Don't join ISIS. That can't be the alternative mission. Um, I think, and we can of course get into this later, um, we have to be a little bit more um, prolific with alternative narratives that, that people can latch onto. That will resonate, and that happens through, through, through culture and a lot of different things that are, that are really complex. Yeah, cool. Thank you for that. Are there any other thoughts you'd like to say on Manchester before we move on? Well, you, uh, um, well, I don't know if, if, I mean, I did have some thoughts about what I've heard with Prevent, mm. Yeah, um, yeah, but I don't know if you want to discuss that now or, or later. Well, let's let's touch on it quickly because it is relevant. Okay. So just for people who don't know, Prevent is the name of the British sort of um, countering violence extremism program. And um, it's over the years um, become quite controversial. Um, and I don't think necessarily fairly so. So, um, yeah, and the, the mayor of um, Manchester has been quite critical of Prevent prior to the um, events that happened in Manchester. And then since the events of Manchester, he has um, become critical again of Prevent. Mm. So, yeah, um, tell us a little bit about what you, you saw and thought of that. Yeah, and again, this is from you know, my perspective is, you know, I'm, I'm based in the US, so so I'm sort of looking at from, from afar at, at what's happening in the UK. But I think that uh, Mayor Burnham's comments were... Uh, about prevent reflect a, a, a frustration, uh, you know, probably a, a frustration that's on both sides. It's on the side of um, the, the 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 you know the Muslim communities who complain that the prevent is uh, unfairly targeting um, them, and also you know there's probably you, there are people who think that well the prevent strategy has not it hasn't done anything it has not it's not preventing. Uh, these sorts of events, um, and I think what the the issue is, you know, you're going to have a problem in general when you use the government security apparatus, or when that that apparatus inserts itself in really what are affairs of the faith. Um, I think by default you're going to have a methodology. You're going to have the methodologies of the security apparatus, and. And that's where some of the some of the the sloppiness uh, occurs. That's where some of the, where some of these things don't work out. So there's this conundrum. I'd say the, the the analogy of implementing a government policy to prevent radicalization. Now this is it's important. So please hear me out. It is important to have a strategy um, uh, for how you're going to ensure that within the society there are uh, efforts to to prevent. Uh, the spread of this ideology, the spread of jihadist ideology and extremism, um, but the the but but a government policy to prevent radicalization is almost uh, or implementing it is going to be similar to implementing a government policy to make people funnier. <laughs> That's the analogy. 
you know, or to give people a better sense of humor, right? The aim may be good, but you can imagine that the execution in the government's hands would be sloppy. Yeah. Because this is a very, you know, we're dealing with social, cultural norms. Um, so, so I think that's probably what you've had with Prevent that, you know, of course, after 7-7, especially, there's definitely a need um, um, to, to do something for the government to do something. People would want that. Um, but in the execution, you know, it's, it's going to be a bit sloppy and, 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 and problematic. And I think maybe just to, to just, you know, we can again talk about this later, but um, I think there's a need for a, probably allowing more experimentation. I think there's a need for Muslim communities themselves to come up with the strategies. But the problem is, and reason why maybe that's not going on is, um, there's just so much defensiveness, right, within internally within the Muslim community. I mean, I can speak from the U.S. perspective. You know, CVE, countering violent extremism, which is a very broad uh, thing here in the U.S. And there's not, uh, unlike the U.K., there's not like one specific strategy or program. So the U.K., the U.S. is very different, and we could talk about maybe why. But even in the U.S., where government officials do talk about CVE. The com- much of the Muslim community here in the U.S. is very much against it, even though it hasn't really been <laughs> implemented. It's barely gotten out of the starting gates. But there's a lot of defensiveness about uh, about the government being involved in in countering extremism. So that makes it difficult for the Muslim community to 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 launch its own efforts and to look, I think, objectively at what's going on. So it seems like there may be something similar. And I think we have to come up with some alternative approaches if we really want to effectively um, uh, uh, mitigate the the spread of extremism. Mm. Just quickly on the US program. At the moment, there's no sort of coordinated CVE strategy in place like Prevent. Well, so, well, like Prevent. So, you know, know, maybe I shouldn't say there's no strategy because certainly... Um, with at least, you know, we can, well, let's talk before uh, January 20th, before mm. uh, the previous administration, the previous couple of administrations, right? There certainly yeah. were, were strategies, uh, particularly under the Obama administration, you had, a, uh, I think, for, for a long time uh, within DHS. Um, uh, I mean, you have an Office of Community Partnerships, which is involved in uh, providing CVE uh, uh, support. There are grants, actually, DHS, Department of Homeland Security here in the U.S., um, has provided um, CVE grants to community institutions with, I think, with the, with the aim of, of what I described, which is um, not a program where the government, in a heavy-handed approach, is, is um, calling people or community institutions to do X, Y, Z, um, but more a strategy where um, the government is trying to meet with community uh, members to talk about problems of extremism, to talk about, um, to sort of engage. And more recently, in fact, there have been several million dollars in the past year that DHS has provided or is in, in is sort of in the process of providing to community organizations, which include Muslim organizations, which include um, uh, uh, mosques. Uh, here in the U.S. with the idea of these groups are going to actually provide their own programs. But here's the catch. So um, when this happened recently, when uh, when, when DHS provided these grants, um, there were several Muslim organizations that had applied for them and that received them. And this was, um, uh, I don't have the exact dates, but it was really the sort of the end of last year, I believe, the end of 2016. Um, when the word came out, when when DHS published or, or publicized these these grants, the, these awards, there was a huge outcry amongst 
certain elements within the Muslim community here that that these organizations should not be accepting CVE grants, that CVE was harmful, that it was um, targeting unfairly Muslim and criminalizing Muslims. So this, this defensiveness where some of the organizations actually said that they would turn down the money because of internal pressure from loud voices within the Muslim community. Um, so this is going on. This tension is still here in a, in a situation that, where I would say it's very different than, than the UK. In the US, not to go off on a tangent, but I mean, as you, as you know, there's this strong, we have a strong culture of, of course, freedom of religion, of course, you know, free, um, all, uh, the, uh, there's a culture that makes it difficult, I think, to have a prevent approach, um, or at least how prevent may, may, may seem to be uh, manifesting, um, it, it's a little bit difficult to do that here, but there's still resistance to anything with the government, uh, with government hands on it, uh, engaging communities around extremism. Yeah. Okay. No, it's very interesting. Yeah. Quite. A, so it sounds like a very complicated situation back your uh, over your side of the pond, as we put it. <laughs> right. Right. Let's let's move on to London Bridge. Yeah. So. Yeah, so um, at 10.06pm on the 3rd of June 2017, three men launched an attack that lasted approximately 10 minutes before they were shot dead by the police. The attack started when the men took a rented van and targeted pedestrians who were walking along London Bridge. And once they'd finished on the bridge, they then crashed that van near Borough Market. Um, and for those who don't know Borough Market, Borough Market's kind of like a... a, a very famous area for sort of world food and uh, lots of really nice restaurants. It's a real foodie part of London. Um, and these men were armed with knives and dressed in what turned out to be fake suicide vests. And they left their van and made their way through Borough Market, going to the pubs and restaurants and attacking anybody they could find. And um, the attack left eight people dead and a further 48 people injured. So, um, yeah, have you got any, any sort of thoughts or comments on, on that attack? Well, um, I think there are some twofold. There's a lesson here that's twofold. Um, one is you know this is a perfect manifestation of the um, the improv the improvising uh, and the ad adapting nature of uh, of, uh, of of jihadist terrorism in the West, where it's clear that uh, it may be difficult to launch a very sophisticated attack. And um, and uh, some of these folks have decided to to use whatever was is within their means um, uh, and, and to to attack, and that this is something that actually has been um, pushed for for years, particularly about by, by Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Um, and the up the other part of the lesson, I think, is that um, it is very difficult, and sometimes the public doesn't see this from, from the outside. But it's it's very difficult to um, to monitor or to police, quote unquote, um, everyone who may have a uh, an, an, an extremist view or a view which may lend itself towards violent extremism. Um, you know, the the fact that um, Quran Butts was in a, a was 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 mentioned or shown in a documentary. Was it called the Jihadis Next Door? Or? Yes, that was a Channel Four documentary. Yeah, he he was in it, and he was very 
careful in what he said. It was obvious um, that he was a supporter of ISIS, but he didn't say anything mm-hmm. to indicate that he directly was. Yes, and so again, so the person uh, who's watching you know, watching that in hindsight might say, you know, and there are lots of examples of this. You know, how is it that this guy was, you know, basically supporting ISIS and and he was ill, he was operating freely. Um, again, this is a difficult, <laughs> these are difficult things to monitor. There are lots of examples but here in the U.S. If you, you know, I remember a lot of people might not remember the name Samir Khan. Uh, Samir Khan was a, again, a young, um, a young, uh, a young guy in North Carolina who, uh, in the uh, probably 2006, 2007, 2008 period, um, had a blog, which was a very, you know, very radical, radical blog. He was very prominent. He was posting, you know, um, uh, attacks, you know, videos of attacks against uh, U.S. forces in Iraq. He, he basically was, um, you know, said he was supporting the, the jihadists, and he he got news coverage. I mean, he was on he the New York Times did a story about him in maybe two thousand seven, and um, you know he was he was on the local news, and so people knew that this guy was was uh, was, was was radical, and, uh, and he 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 did not hide it at all. Um, but he ended up going to Yemen and joining Anwar al awlaki and in fact, he was he was killed, I believe, in the same airstrike that uh, that killed Al Laki. Um, so the, a person might ask, "Well, how did this happen?" And the thing is, you know, in our societies, in the UK, and the US, we do have a uh, 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 freedom of uh, you know freedom of of expression to an extent, and um, you know, people are often very careful to not cross the line. You can sort of support uh, 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 violence or support a group. You know, some people find a way to support that, but if you're not actually um, doing something yourself, it is uh, it's it's difficult for law enforcement to to actually act against you, and because of that, um, people fall through the cracks. So um, the, the 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 government, the police, the intelligence community, uh, the intelligence community, you know, uh, they're not uh, they're not omnipotent, obviously, and so people have to have to understand that that this is a hard problem to. To, to get a grasp of well definitely and and the thing is um it's down to what constitutes a crime um right. because right. obviously having an opinion and expressing an opinion in a certain way um may not necessarily constitute a crime in the uk you have to directly incite violence so you'd have to say something that would then you know that'd be pretty obvious that you're saying that you should go and do this or do that or i'm going to go and do this and do that with um x y and z mm-hmm. um so yeah, so I, I suppose what is it in the U.S. because it might be different in the U.K. But what is it in the U.S. Do you think that cons- um, would actually constitute breaking the law, which is the fine line that these people tread? It, it's I, I, it would be very similar. It would be um, directly supporting or encouraging someone to do a criminal act, right? To support uh, to support a, a a a designated terrorist group to join a terrorist group. So even not not even if you're not doing it yourself, but specifically um, uh, encouraging and inciting someone to to do that act or to join that group or support that group. Um, but you again, that's a very there, there's a lot of uh, there's a fine line there. Where, where where people have have come up to that line and not crossed it, um, where you can still sort of by 
by inference see what they're uh, directing you to and so so that that happens as well so it's, it's very it's very do and you know we we have examples where someone may be investigated for a certain amount of time and again you can't investigate someone you know uh you know in perpetuity so um uh, so sometimes uh investigations happen and then they stop and then the same person is uh, ends up doing something yeah yeah no exactly and, and there's a lot of manpower or should I say person power involved in investigating every single individual so they have to um put their resources towards who they feel is the greatest threat at that time and it's not always sadly that obvious is it so right right you know and you know one one other thing about uh, this attack or at least the three individuals um you know, you, you know, at least I haven't looked at all of them, but I know one of the individuals, I think it was Yusuf Zagba, who was uh, the, um, I believe, uh, of, of Moroccan parentage. Um, you know, he showed some of the, you know, telltale signs or the, 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 he had the profile, right, of the individual who was not religious at one point, um, known for partying, clubbing. And it, it seems he went through his own transformation. So, so he, there was a period uh, within the recent years where he, or recent months, where he became more devout, sort of rejected his playboy, previous playboy lifestyle. Um, and so again, so these were signs of a, of a transformation. Um, did, 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 not necessarily an indicator of violence, of course, um, but it just shows you some of the the dynamics that that he dealt with, um, and 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 it's interesting getting to back to the whole the whole issue of um, of, of of an alternative narrative. Um, I think what what we didn't mention is with Abedi with the Man with the Manchester attack. I believe the news also reported that he called his family members um, before the attack to to ask for their forgiveness. And what he was about to do during that day, um, and again, it just goes to show you that even with someone who's sort of caught in this, um, you sort of caught up within this narrative and within this ideology, there was a sense somewhere that what he was doing was 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 wrong, um, and um, you know, and, and so so that you know that shows us that again, there, there this is not a, just a one-way process where there there's no second guessing. I think especially when you're up, you know, when you're getting close to the actual act. So uh, there's there would be um, benefit in there again there being alternative narratives that could compete because obviously he was uh, you know even at the end maybe he was not a hundred percent although he uh, unfortunately did uh, end up doing the act. So on the 19th of June um, at 12.20am, uh, a man identified as Darren Osborne used a van to target worshippers who were exiting the Finsbury Park Mosque. Eyewitnesses described Mr Osborne as shouting, I want to kill Muslims, as he engaged in a vehicle-based attack in a similar style to the Westminster attack in March and at uh, the beginning of the London Bridge attack earlier that month. One person died and 10 people were injured as a result of that attack. Also in France, we had a similar attack on the 29th of June um, at 6.30pm French time outside the um, Critiel Mosque. I hope I got that pronunciation right. Um, and the police arrested a 43-year-old man who has not been named and luckily, with regards to the attack in Paris, no one was harmed because the vehicle struck barriers that had been put in place to protect the mosque. Um, so this was a sort of, um, yeah, a kind of 
copy these two are kind of copycat attacks and they are um this time now targeting muslim innocent muslim worshippers so do you have any sort of thoughts on on this and and i suppose it's, is this the beginnings of sort of the rise of the the far right um i think this is an indicator um not that we needed this to to, to happen of course but i think this is an indicator of the need to really reduce the temperature um, that we that 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 we have um, uh, on the issue of um, on on this issue in general on 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 our in our discussion about terrorism. Um, there's right now the the dialogue and the discussion is so toxic. Um, you know that it seems that it's. I mean, what what seems to be happening is very similar to what seems to be happening happening with the with Muslim extremists, right? Where there's so much um, vitriol that it doesn't take someone being a part of Al Qaeda or ISIS uh, to do something. Um, people are getting motivated because, almost because of the, the uh, it doesn't even have to be the echo chamber, but because of the heightened uh, state that, that we're in uh, around these issues. Um, so I think, you know, unfortunately, we're not doing a good job of, of addressing these issues in a way that promotes balance promotes engagement. So I, I, I think both of these unfortunate incidents, I mean, are, are the result of, of, uh, of this heightened temperature. And the question is, how do we reduce that? How do we uh, address security issues and, and, and clear security threats um, in, in a way that actually gets to, gets, to the, gets to the issue and doesn't divide people and sort of pull people to, to further extremes? Uh, and we have to get a handle on this because, see, the problem is, uh, uh, we can't man. You can't manage everyone, right? I mean, some people think that the government is going to stop people from hating. The government is not going to stop people from hating. The government, um, again, the government is not omnipotent. So, as a society, as a community, um, you know, we have to figure out ways that we're going to take control of the narratives that we're going to address. That we're going to deal with with grievances and what you know, and people being upset about certain issues, whether it's foreign policy or whether it's domestic policy. We've got to figure out a, a ways to sort of control the, these narratives to to um, to to, re to lower the temperature so that we can have um, better engagement because we're not doing a good job. Um, and I'm not someone who you know, uh, blames the media, who's going to say, oh, well, the media hypes everything up. Uh, that There is hype in the media. There is sensationalism in the media. That's not going to go away. Um, but so, you, you know, you can't necessarily control that. But what, what can we do is we can sort of cultivate, I think, uh, more sensible engagement. I mean, this is, this is where, again, um, dealing with culture comes in. Um, and as I said before, right, there's not going to be a government policy that's going to fix things. There's not going to be a media policy, although, of course, the media should be um, pushed to be fair um, and to be fair to, in, in its coverage of events. But um, but again, we, we can't depend on that. There's really uh, there's the need for those of us to who, who are sensible to to engage and to um uh, and, you know, to bring a little bit more, um, <laughs> more balance to the force, <laughs> um, uh, if I can borrow that term. 
Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, because, yeah, looking at these two attacks um, online, there was a lot of criticism of the coverage of them and even mm. the unwillingness of um, the Prime Minister, Theresa May, to publicly call it an act of terrorism in regards to the Finsbury Park attack. Now, some people um, came forward to mention that because the suspect was, uh, Darren Osborne was arrested and he was alive and not killed, and so there will be a court case, um, that people's choice of words had to be a little bit different um, mm -hmm. because obviously it might affect the outcome of the trial that will come up in the future. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I've not personally worked in law enforcement, so I, don't, I can't speak for what the legal system requires. But um, mm -hmm. from my watching law and order, that kind of makes sense to me. But <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and um, you know, I, I kind of have my, my view on this might be might be different because I often, you know, I, it, I often feel that, um, you know, a lot of times we get caught up in the semantics, right? So the issue becomes using the word terrorism becomes another sort of uh, a battle point or, you know, another another issue that we want to fight over. Um, and in my mind, uh, you know, coming from you know, working in government, this is what, the one thing I'll say, which is what a lot of people don't understand is that there are some practical reasons for um, how government will use the term. I, I'm not sure about media, but in terms of how government, you have to think from a law enforcement perspective or uh, um, uh, when a crime is committed or when there's an attack, whether it's a sort of a lone wolf or some sort of organized attack, um, how you, what you call it really, um, uh, really influences or it, it, it really influences who covers it, who investigates it and how you deal with it, which experts. So if there is an attack, um, uh, there is a attack in, let's say, I don't know, Virginia Tech, like we had several years ago with a gunman um, who went on a rampage, right? So when that first happens, so no one knows what's going on. We just know that there's violence, right? So, and as, as people find out more, okay, you find out, okay, who the person was, you find out a state of mind, you find out a little bit of history, then what happens is then you know who to send to investigate and to, 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 to address that crime, right? And within the government there, you have, you have, um, you have hate crime units, you have domestic terrorism, you have international terrorism um, agents, right? So, so you, what you call it uh, sh will then impact who's going to investigate it and who's going to prosecute it. And so, from, again, from the government perspective, that's where a lot of the, the, the that's where the semantics are important. If this is terrorism, uh, if it's connected to a global terrorist movement where, you know, we know Al-Qaeda, we know Islamic State, we know, you know, we know these groups and there are people who are experts, there are analysts and, and agents who are, who are experts in this group or in these, in these groups or these movements, well, you want them covering the, uh, this case. So it's going to fall under that. If, it's, if you, you have a department that deals with, you have units that deal with hate crime, right? They deal with a certain category of crimes. So you want their expertise to work on this particular case. Now, that's not to say that there's not overlap and that maybe we're, uh, often we're dealing with a very murky circumstance where it's a hate crime, but also maybe it, it has the signs of terrorism, right? If terrorism is you know, violence in order to uh, make a political impact, you could, you could define it as terrorism. Um, but then you're really getting into semantics. A lot of, a lot of, from a government perspective, I think a lot of the difference difference really has to do with um, who's going to go after this person or the, who's going to follow this and investigate this crime, um, and how you know what box is it going to fall under within the government or the law enforcement bureaucracy. So again, 
it's not something that people think about, but um, uh, but the, the, those are some of the issues at play. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I suppose, yeah, a lot of people, when they look at these debates, they're looking at it from their, um, from what makes sense to them. And as most people haven't worked in the police or, or um, uh, for the intelligence services or read books on those things, um, they just, um, yeah, it sort of seems simple to them that, oh, yeah, that's terrorism and that's this and that's that. But it's not always that simple. Um, right. So, well, that that brings us nicely into section two. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, right. Um, what is the accepted definition of terrorism? Mm-hmm. Pretty simple, right? I mean, um, you know, terrorism is you know uh, um, uh, committing a violent act with the aim of uh, creating a political change, right? Making a change in um, either a policy. Um, uh, or you know a gov- government activity or some sort of some sort of change in um, political structure, political activity, uh, uh, but using violence, particularly against um, um, uh, particularly against uh, um, civilians, although not necessarily, but 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 um, particularly against civilians um, and, and non-combatants. In order to create that that change, and um, that's why there's again dom- domestic terrorism is 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 a thing. International terrorism, global terrorism, from from a government perspective, you have different uh, different boxes, different categories of uh, of terrorism. So global, you know, the the global jihadist movement, right, is a particular uh, particular movement, and that's a particular branch of terrorism. There is domestic terrorism. There is right-wing terrorism. Um, I, I, I like to mention a very interesting aside, which is when I when I was at the agency, I remember when uh, when I decided to become a counterterrorism analyst. You know, I was not hired to do counterterrorism. I actually was an economic analyst, um, and then decided after the seven seven bombing that I would uh, you know to use my, my my background more for for uh, to counterterrorism. And I'll never forget. Um, I wanted to just read about the study of terrorism, so I I, I think I picked up um, Bruce Hoffman's book. Um, I believe it's called On Terrorism. One of his one of the you know just the 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 the, the broad books about terrorism. Very popular book. Um, so I read through the book, and I got to the end, and there was no mention of Al Qaeda. And then I looked at it and I realized, oh, I had gotten the original edition, <laughs> which came out in whatever it was, 96 or 95 or, or whatever. And the book was really focused on right wing and militia, the militia movement uh, here in the United States, which was a huge focus of the FBI. So I actually read, I was learning about terrorism, and I was actually learning about how the FBI was, was operating to counter these right-wing groups, these militia groups. If you remember the whole, you know, like the David, after the David Koresh thing, and, yeah. um, you know, this was during the... And Oklahoma bombing. So this was during the, the Clinton administration when the focus was, of course, Al-Qaeda. Al- there was a focus on Al-Qaeda, uh, but that was a, a, a separate unit. But really the big thing in the, in the mid-90s um, uh, was these uh, was the, the this militia the militia movement and the the right wing ex- extremist movement? So for me that was my first lesson that wow so the government apparatus at that time was geared towards co- was addressing terrorism of this type and then later really post nine eleven or particularly in the in the nineties after the um, after the embassy bombings in, in in Nairobi and in Tanzania 
Um, and then, of course, the coal bombings. Of course, this started to change and, 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 and really uh, changed with 9-11. Um, the global jihadist movement and, and jihadist terrorism uh, obviously gained more resources and more attention. But I just like to provide that, that backdrop for folks to, to see that terrorism is not necessarily equated with um, Islamist terrorism or jihadist movements. It's really just, just one particular type. And so you can, you can categorize different types of terrorism, definitely. Yeah, from what I've read about the pre-9-11, in the mid-90s, investigations into al-Qaeda was sort of a fringe thing, uh, mainly run by the New York office of the FBI, I believe. I don't know if you'd say fringe, but um, it, it, it wasn't the, yeah, it wasn't the, the, the predominant um, focus, right, uh, of law enforcement. You had a select group of experts who, of course, were following up on, um, you know, the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. Um, but until, yes, until much later, until the late 90s and, of course, 2000, uh, 2001, it wasn't the, the dominant focus. No. I'd like to have a quick chat with you, if uh, if you can, about this, actually. So how does a sort of typical investigation, you've sort of answered this, but how does a typical investigation play into an attack like the ones we've discussed today, and what kind of information is important, and what kind of information is usually held back from the press? Well, um, so what I can say is the period after an attack is one of um, figuring out what what facts do you know, not only about the attack itself, right? So what do you know about the perpetrator? You know, if he's alive, um, you know, what, what's going on with him? You know, what, what, what's the current state of affairs? Um, but in the background, of course, from an analyst, you know, uh, I can speak more from an analyst perspective because, again, I wasn't an operator. Um, so so f- for an analyst, you know, what you're doing is you're trying to figure out what you know or what we know, right? What does, what does the government know about this individual, the people? So if, if a person has been ID'd, you want to know, are they someone who we've dealt with before? Um, are they someone who's who have who's been on the radar of law enforcement before, um, and, or are they connected to someone? Are, are they is there an association with individuals that are already known to law enforcement? I mean, that's really the the key part. From an analyst, you're trying to connect the dots so that because um, you know you could be called in, right? An attack happens. And you could be off. I know there have been situations like this where, um, let's say, an attack happens. And if you're off duty, obviously, you have no idea. You don't have access to, to, you know, to, to the investigation or classified information. So you could be off, off duty and um, just be watching from the news, uh, watching the news like everyone else. But you could get a call. Which, um, which, if 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 it's discovered that there is a tie to something that you've studied or that that you've that you've researched or analyzed, um, or a case that's that you're familiar with, you may be called in because at that point, um, you know, uh, the leadership wants the the government, the security leadership wants to hear from everyone who may know anything about. Um, this person, the the attacker, or, or about what may be motivating them, or who they're connected to. So, um, you know, again, without getting into a whole lot of details, there's a process of connecting the dots, getting as much background as possible. Um, and now, in terms of press, you know, uh, the, you, there 
there are lots of reasons for not wanting to engage the press, but I mean, you know, aside from, you know, you know I'm, you, I'm sure you're familiar, I mean, again, anyone watching you know, Law and Order knows that, you know, you don't want to tip off the suspect, you know, or, or people who may be, or others who may be involved, you don't want them to know what the police know, right, about the situation. But there's also, getting at maybe some of the things that we touched on earlier, you also want to make sure you have accurate information in the public space. Um, a lot of times that's why you don't, you don't, you, you know, the, the government or law enforcement may not share that much is because they don't want to put out things that they can't take back. So a lot of times you hear speculation which is either coming from the media or reported by the media, which is not official, which is not coming from the folks on the scene. Um, but of course, the press is very uh, you know, diligent and they're going to find ways to get comments or to, to eke out in information from people. Um, so, but, but, you, but as you don't want to taint the public space or public opinion and you just don't want to put out incorrect information a lot of times sometimes information is out and then it has to get corrected you don't want to have to correct things that you said because you said them you uh, in an official capacity and then you found that they were incorrect i mean no one wants to do that so there's it, it, there's really incentive to be as tight-lipped as possible and only release information that you know is accurate yeah Thank you. So when discussing ISIS and Al-Qaeda-inspired terrorism, um, experts like yourself often use the phrase terrorist narrative. Can we can we just talk a bit about what we actually, what is the terrorist or jihadi narrative, what we mean by that? So um, to discuss this, I, I have to get religious. <laughs> okay, cool, cool. Go ahead. I have to touch on sort of the, the religious narrative and religious perspective. So the terrorist narrative, when you, when you at least when you're talking about um, the global jihadist movement, um, probably the key thing to pay attention to if we want to counter it is one assumption. And their assumption is, the narrative's assumption is, that the, the fighting and the, the battles of the time, particularly during the time of, of Prophet Muhammad, um, uh, are analogous to the times that we're in today that the 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 um, the battles between the the Quraysh, which was a tribe in Mecca, the, the the Meccans, who were really fighting the initial the early Muslim community um, during Muhammad's time with his followers, that 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 they as as enemies of the of the faith at that time um, uh, are analogous to the West. To non-Muslim, uh, to, to non-Muslim uh, majority countries, um, or even the Muslim majority countries that are seen by the jihadists as apostate governments, that that analogy, right? That because with that analogy, you can read into scripture, you can read into Islamic history, um, justification for what jihadists are doing. And it's not just the bombing of, let's say, a suicide bombing attack. Uh, it, because here's the thing, a lot of times the, you know, people talk about the, uh, let's say, uh, the, you know, like 9-11 as an attack, right? Um, or 7-7. Uh, and it's very easy, to, you know, it's, it's clear terrorism. Um, That's it, it, clearly terrorism. You're killing innocents and, and civilians. Um, but then when you look at a group like what Al-Qaeda is doing in Syria, in Syria, Al-Qaeda does not have 
uh, Al-Qaeda really sort of hides its, its role. So in, in, in Syria, um, you have a, 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 a branch of Al-Qaeda that doesn't really operate as a, as a publicly foreign, you know, that, that doesn't call itself Al-Qaeda, although it has been directed from Al-Qaeda and has merged with a lot of the rebel movements and rebel groups who may have similar ideologies, um, to, but they sort of have joined the fight against um, the Assad regime. So, 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 how do you define that? Because what is happening there in Syria is people are latching on to the same narrative um, to fight Assad, right? So, so you have this, this this mixture where really what you're talking about is a narrative that that makes today's um, uh, jihadist conflict the same as the conflict that happened during the Prophet's time, and I would say that this is. The, this is the connection that has to be broken. Um, and, and, and to me, there, there, there are lots of logical arguments. I mean, we don't have to necessarily get into them, um, uh, but that's where, that's, you know, if we were doing surgery, that's really, that's the sweet spot. That's where we have to, to create a break. Um, so, 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 so seeing the, and, and also seeing the idea of, um, there being a you know the place of Islam and, and uh, or a place of war, right? That 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 either you have a um, a a society which is run by what you know what 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 these folks say is you know an Islamic truly Islamic life or an Islamic state. Um, that if that isn't happening, that you should be at war with it in, in, until that is implemented. Uh, these are again. These are assumptions. These are b ways of reasoning that impact how people see the religion and the, uh, Islamic history, early Islamic history, that justify part of going to join um, Al Qaeda in Syria or joining ISIS. And it's really the really the, the biggest draw. The idea of of supporting a righteous fight. Um, you know, I think we might have touched on before this idea of migrating, right? You know, migrating to a land where you can practice Islam and fight against those who are, are, are fighting Muslims. Uh, again, that, that connects to a part of the early Islamic history where Muslims fled persecution and then created a new society in Medina and then actually fought. There wasn't fighting. There was only peaceful perseverance up until um, Muslims went to Medina. And so people will draw the parallel. They'll say that, look, this is in essence, this is like what, what Muhammad did in Medina. So, so you see all of these parallels that relate to, to scripture, that relate to how the Quran is interpreted, and how, how Muhammad's life is interpreted. These have to be addressed. And the there have to be narratives which explain that, yes, Muhammad did fight. Muhammad was in, you know, the, the early Muslims were involved in battles. You can't take, you can't whitewash that away. But what is the context? How do you understand that? How is a modern person living in 2017 who's a, a Muslim, how do you read those? How do you understand those verses spiritually, religiously? How do they help you navigate in the world? Um, is it to help, is it to, to, to see you going to Iraq? Is it to see you fighting the, the British? Um, or are there other, do we, do we understand even these battles, the, the, the battles themselves? Do we take um, deeper insights that help us with our, 
our growth and our, 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 our capacity to be faithful people and to do good in the world, you know, th this is all interpretation. And I think we're not, um, in the Muslim community, I think even, we're not addressing this as much. We're just saying, hey, terrorism is bad. Uh, ISIS, Daesh is, is bad. Uh, don't join them. But how are we giving people an alternative understanding? Um, we have to do that. Otherwise, the simple... The simple narrative of doing, you know, doing this this glorified fight will will always resonate more because there's there's you know there's there's nothing to compete with it. So at least nothing that really resonates. So so um, I, I I guess the, the the last thing I'll say about this is even though I'm talking a lot about religion, um, uh, it's not necessarily. You know, there's always this question of you know religious reform. You know, does Islam need to be reformed? And we probably we probably don't have enough time to to, to get into this. So I, I I'll try to end this quickly. But what I would say is, it, you know, it's it's hard to reform religion, and 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 religion is so complex. Um, uh, and I don't think that I don't I personally don't don't believe that's the case. I actually believe there's there is within Islam. Islam is so wide. It's so broad. People try to constrain it. Um, there, you know, Islam is already very, very broad um, and and wide. What needs, what is needed, is a change in culture, uh, a change in culture, so that we, as Muslims within the Muslim community, we get um, more enlightened um, narratives from 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 our scripture, from our history. That we have a culture that supports critical thinking. We have a culture that supports intellectualism with faith, um, and, and and a culture that understands that this world of pluralist pluralism that well, we're only going to be living in pluralistic societies from here on out. It, it's even a, a homogeneous. There there there's no longer going to be a truly homogeneous society because we're just too connected to to, to each other now. There's too many movements, uh, too much mobility. So. Um, so we have to, I think, uh, uh, do a better job with, uh, with that. Excellent. I'm going to invite you for any final thoughts uh, that you have on anything that we've talked about today or if there's anything we haven't spoken about or is anything you want to elaborate more on. So, yeah, yeah, final thoughts. Final thoughts, I'll have to mention something that I deal with, which is terrorist financing. Mm. Um, there are two sides to this issue that I think that the, the broader public needs to be aware of. Terrorist, terrorist financing is, is such a niche issue. A lot of folks don't focus on it. And I'll say two things. One, interestingly, um, as, the, as the London Bridge attack uh, shows, it's very easy and ex inexpensive to conduct a terrorist attack. So, so that uh, is uh, this, uh, that's, that's bad news. Um, so, but, so sometimes we focus on the big ticket items, but really it's very easy. Um, so we have to get smarter with our, and our sort of our countering the narratives, um, so that people don't, don't, <laughs> don't you know, don't go for the, you know, don't feel motivated to go for these types of attacks. The other side of it is as ISIS loses territory, it's actually going to, um, have less funding, less funds, less funds. But we still have to be vigilant because of one thing, which is the windfall that they had, right? As they lose territory, they're going to lose um, funding because they can't tax, they can't extort as much, but they also don't need to govern as much. They have less expenditure. There is, unfortunately, I think, um, uh, uh, an abundance of cash 
or an abundance uh, uh, that's available, not just for ISIS, but even groups like Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, who at one point had $2 million a day in port taxes when they controlled a particular port for a year in southern Yemen. What ha what is what happens to that funding? So there's a lot of funding. So that's probably another conversation. But that's my my final thought that that um that we have to get more strategic about how we're going to address this this issue, address the funding issue in particular. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much for all that today. And um, we will definitely, I think we'll definitely have to pick up on terrorist financing in the future. It'd be interesting to talk about that because there's a lot of the debate. There's all sorts of things. I mean, I suppose one quick fire question, if I may. Um, in the UK recently, the big debates come up about the role of Saudi Arabia with regards to financing and ideology. Have you got a quick way to answer the role of Saudi Arabia um, with relation to the sort of extremism that we're witnessing today? Wow, you said you wanted this. To, you said quick. <laughs> if you have a quick one, if you don't, we'll, we'll leave it out. <laughs> the, the 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 key problem. So you know, so obviously a new center has just been started um, to in Saudi Arabia. Actually, the U.S. is a partner with you know with Saudi Arabia and, and several multiple uh, Middle Eastern and Gulf countries. Um, so, so Saudi Arabia is, is, is trying to crack down in some ways. Other countries, uh, this is what I'll say. Um, a big problem is that despite what a government says or tries to do, um, citizens often find their own way. And uh, other countries in the Gulf have been more permissive, Qatar in particular, um, Kuwait have been more permissive environments to raise funds through, you know, even through charities that get money to, 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 to militant groups in Iraq and Syria, uh, to Syria, I should say, in particular. Um, so, so, so you still have to address the issue of ideology and snapping that analogy between the jihadist fight now and the true Islamic fight during the Prophet's time until we break that, um, you're going to see people wanting to support jihadist causes financially. Brilliant. That was a very good, good concise answer. Thank you. <laughs> oh, good. All right. Thank you. <laughs> you well, Thank you very good. much. Cool. Right. I'll, I'll officially sign you out. Um, before I do that, do you want to mention your article that's coming out and where we can find it? So, um, yeah, so I have an article, which I guess by the time we, we, uh, this is published, the article uh, about um, countering how to, how to counter the jihadist um, pull um, should be in, uh, on a website called the Muslim Matters, muslimmatters.org, uh, <laughs> I believe. Um, that should be out probably when this is recorded. And in it, I talk about how we can um, make that break. Uh, and it's through culture and it's through really um, answering some of these religious narratives, but doing it in a way where Muslims really are at the forefront of taking control of the narrative and, and taking it away from those who have hijacked our religion. So at MuslimMatters.org, um, you could just search my name and uh, uh, Yahya Fanusi, and I'm sure you'll find it. Thank you so much for your thoughts and your time today. I, I really appreciate that. It's, uh, no, you've, it's been very interesting. And as always, I still feel we only scratched the surface of this. But, <laughs> right. but uh, I'm, I'm sure in a few years we'll finally completely crack it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, my pleasure as well. Thank you for the, for the great conversation. Like what we're doing? Connect with us on Twitter at DryCleanerCast. Support the show by becoming a Dry Cleaner Cast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. 
That's patreon.com slash drycleanercast. Thanks for listening. This is Need to Know.